Middle East program. Uh, I am delighted to, uh, to welcome this panel, to welcome you to this very important topic of humanitarian access in Yemen. Uh, Yemen, a country of something on the order of 30 million people, has 24.4 million people in need of assistance. 10 million of Yemen's 30 million people are one step away from starvation. On the issue of humanitarian access, in June and July, humanitarian agencies reported to the UN 300 incidents of hindering humanitarian access affecting 4.9 million people. 90% of those incidents were just bureaucratic uh, obstacles, many of which were imposed by the Houthis or Ansar Allah. Uh, the Houthis are trying to introduce new regulations for international non-governmental organizations that would undermine humanitarian principles. The UN group of experts found that the effective naval blockade of Hodeida and the closure of Sana'a Airport was a violation of international humanitarian law. In addition to the conflict in the north of the country, there's a conflict with separatists in the south of the country, which creates its own level of disruption. The Gulf states have not yet fulfilled commitments they made to funding humanitarian operations in Yemen last February, leaving those programs almost a billion dollars short and in dire need as they try to meet the needs of Yemen's people. More broadly, the group of experts that the UN appointed to look at Yemen found earlier this month that all parties to the conflict, all parties to the conflict, had violated their obligation to allow and facilitate rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian relief for civilians in need by imposing restrictions on the movement of humanitarian personnel and goods into and within Yemen. In addition, aid diversion by the Houthis and possibly by other actors has impeded the delivery of humanitarian supplies in accordance with humanitarian principles. Violence against humanitarian personnel, assets, and facilities included the murder of a delegate of the International Committee of the Red Cross in April 2018, which led to the withdrawal of humanitarian actors from certain areas. This is a big problem. It's a big issue. I could not be more pleased by the panel we have today to address it. To my immediate left and your right is Sheba Crocker. She's the Vice President for Humanitarian Policy and Practice at CARE USA, where she provides leadership and strategic guidance for CARE's emergency humanitarian operations programs and policy. I believe the pinnacle of her career was when she was my colleague here at CSIS as the co-director of the post-conflict reconstruction program. She's done a thing or two else uh, from 2014 to 2017, she was Assistant Secretary of State for, uh, in the Bureau of International Organization Affairs, Principal Deputy Director in the Office of Policy Planning at the State Department, and Chief of Staff to the Deputy Secretary of State. She's worked for the Gates Foundation, worked as a Senior Advisor in the UN's Peacebuilding Support Office, and Deputy Chief of Staff to the UN Special Envoy for Tsunami Recovery. Sheba is great, and you will see why shortly. The next great guest is Dr. Aisha Juman, who's the founder and president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, a nonprofit charity that aims to provide relief and support to the people of Yemen. She's a U.S.-trained epidemiologist who's worked all over the world and in Yemen for decades for both U.S. and international organizations on immunization and disease prevention. Uh, she has a Ph.D. in epidemiology from UNC Chapel Hill, an MPH from Emory, and a BA from Mills College. And last and certainly not least is my old friend Peter Salisbury, 
who is a consulting senior analyst for Yemen at the International Crisis Group and a senior consulting fellow at Chatham House. Uh, he spent six years as an independent journalist. He lived in Yemen uh, for more than two years over the last 10. If you talk to anybody about how do you understand the context of Yemen, the politics of Yemen, the future of Yemen, everybody will tell you the best person to have in the room is the one who's in our room, Peter Salisbury. So I am really delighted that we were able to assemble this panel for this really, really important uh, set of discussions. So I want to start with Sheba. You have dealt with all kinds of crises all around the world. What, what are we seeing in terms of humanitarian access issues in Yemen? How does Yemen compare? And what's unique about Yemen as we consider the set of problems? So first of all, thank you, John, for having us here today and for that warm um, introduction. And um, I think in classic sort of humanitarian agency fashion, we'll talk with the one person on the panel who has not actually ever yet been to Yemen to about what is unique in Yemen. Um, and then we'll hear from those who have been inside. But, um, but I think, you know, given the breadth of the programming that we have in Yemen, and as you say, some of what I've seen over a course of a career seeing this stuff, um, I'll give a few thoughts on what makes the situation unique. I mean, John well laid out the litany of statistics, and one could go on and on, um, that sort of speak to the depth and the breadth of the humanitarian crisis um, and the particular nature of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. It is the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Um, he talked about 24 million people in need out of a population of 30 million, so that's 80% of the population of Yemen is in need of humanitarian assistance. Um, and, um, you know, I think another thing that it's probably worth noting is that unlike some of the other big humanitarian challenges that we um, are familiar with that are going on right now, um, Syria, for example, South Sudan and others, Yemen has not resulted in a huge exodus of displaced persons from inside the country. Um, there are about four million people estimated to have been displaced by the conflict, but the vast majority of those reside inside of Yemen. And that has implications both, I think, for the level of attention um, and for the kinds of funding that um, is going to, uh, to try to alleviate the crisis in Yemen. Um, I think just getting back to the first point for a minute, I was struck recently um, under Secretary General at the UN, Lowcock uh, gave some remarks at the Security Council, as he regularly does on the situation in Yemen. And he sort of remarked about the fact that here we are yet again raising the same sort of top line four points about the need in Yemen from a funding perspective, from an access perspective. Um, it doesn't change, right? And that's not because the humanitarian response is failing. It's just because the conflict is so relentless and keeps going on and the need just keeps deepening every year. Um, and the kinds of challenges that we continue to raise, whether they're financing or access or otherwise, don't change, right? But year on year, um, the, the need of the population just deepens. And so we face a situation where the humanitarian need across all sectors is estimated to have risen 27% just from last year to this year. Um, this just relentless violations of international humanitarian law. 
Um, and we heard a bit about that from, um, from Lowcock this morning and from others in the opening panel, also from the perspective of just the lack of accountability for that. So it's both the relentless violations of, of international humanitarian law, the bombings of civilian infrastructure, the bombings of civilians. Um, you know, we might hear a bit from Aisha about the challenges that she faces when she goes into the country to try to travel from place to place on the task force that we were on. We talked about drives that used to take 15 minutes that now take four hours. Um, and so it's both that combined with just the breadth of the types of access challenges that we're seeing in Yemen, partly caused by the violations of international humanitarian law, frankly, partly caused by bureaucratic and other restrictions that are placed on humanitarian actors, both by authorities inside the country and, frankly, by the donor countries who are funding the humanitarian effort. Um, combined with the fact that this is a country where 90% of food has to be imported, where 80% of um, uh, all humanitarian assistance passes through one port, which John mentioned, the siege um, that has been going on, on and off there. Um, and so it's not, it's not only that it's sort of it's particularly vulnerable to sort of geopolitical trends, but also especially vulnerable when there are things like blockades of ports and airports that are needed not only to bring in humanitarian goods, but also just to bring in the commercial goods that, as a normal matter, help keep the country alive. Um, and I think importantly, we tend to be fairly self-referential in the humanitarian community, but ultimately what we're talking about is the ability of people to access what they need to access, right? And so whether that's just part of their daily lives, having functioning marketplaces, um, having salaries that are paid, being able to access that humanitarian assistance which a humanitarian actors are trying to get into the country in various ways or that are being provided by local actors, right? I think we sometimes have to flip that conversation on its head. It's not only about how do we reach people, it's about how do people reach what they need. Um, and that's particularly salient in the context of, vul of particularly vulnerable parts of the population, so women, children, and others who are traditionally marginalized. Um, and then just to end and say that, you know, Yemen was the poorest country in the Middle East before the conflict started. Um, and also, by the way, one of the toughest countries in the world in which to be a woman for various reasons, or high rates of child marriage, high rates of maternal mortality, low financial inclusion. Um, the UNDP, the UN Development Program, in the spring put out a report that said that um, by its estimates, Yemen's development has been set back 21 years already over the course of the conflict, and that if we see the conflict continue just for another three years, it will be set back by 26 years. So we're talking about a generation of development that has and this, been lost. And this is a country with a per capita income of $900 before the conflict started. $900 per year before the conflict started. Yeah. So, so, um, so that's just sort of an overview of, I think, the, the kind of the breadth and the range and the depth of the challenges, um, both that we face as humanitarian actors, but I think also, again, importantly, it's always, you know, I always want to have us, the focus be really on the people. And so as we get into this conversation, um, to always remember that what we're talking about at the end of the day is millions of people who have been under siege for four and a half years and a situation that is not going to change Ultimately, no matter how much, by the way, we improve the humanitarian response effort and the funding that comes in without a political resolution to the conflict. Thank you, Shiva. Now, Aisha, you've been working getting assistance to Yemen personally uh, for years. Shiba gave us, in many ways, the top-down view. Uh, can you give us a, a sort of bottom-up view of what it's like as somebody trying to get assistance to desperately needy people in Yemen? 
Thank you, John. Um, I'm going to use an epidemiologic um, analogy because that's my, um, my daily job. When we look at disease, most of the time, we don't find one factor that causes disease. There are always multiple factors, whether it's age, whether it's um, exposure to the, um, the infection, whether it's gender, and so forth. And so what, when we try to figure out which one of these factors is the most important one, we try to adjust and make them all similar, except for the factor that we're looking at. For Yemen, the most important factor that's leading to this disaster in terms of the numbers you just heard um, is the blockade that's imposed on Yemen. So when you have a country that relies, 90 of, uh, relies on 90% of its food to come from the outside, and then you have a blockade, and then you have a humanitarian aid that brings in about 20% of what Yemen needs, and you multiply that. So the first year, you get 20% in. The second year, you get 20% in, and so forth. You get to the fourth and the fifth year. There is really not a lot that's happening in Yemen, or there isn't a lot that's available. And when commodities are less, what happens then? Then they become more expensive. Uh, rivals within the inside of Yemen start fighting for control over those very important commodities. And that's what's happening in Yemen. I'll talk also now about some personal experiences with aid that we've tried, and to show you that the restrictions have actually become worse over time. So in 2015, when the war started, we started delivering aid in Adan al Lahj because they were the first affected. It was very easy to send money, and people were able to buy stuff because stuff was still in the market and deliver it. Um, we moved to Hdaida, we moved to Saada, and things were moving. We didn't have any restrictions. Come 2016, the funds we sent to Yemen were actually returned by the bank. The bank refused to take the money or give it to the person we uh, send it to because they wanted to know now more information. And part of it is because the international community now has restrictions on how much money gets transferred to Yemen and for where, where it's going and so forth. So th that limited our ability to work in Yemen. It took a lot of work for us to open a bank account, but now we do have a bank account. Then we, we tried to send in water filters uh, the first time around. We sent them in December of 2016. They didn't arrive to Yemen until August of 2017. I don't know exactly what happened and why the delay, but that's the shipping company kept telling us, we'll tell you when it gets there. Luckily for us, when it got there, we were able to take them out, distribute both in Sana'a and in Aden, and we're very happy with that. Then we got uh, donations of medicine for Americares, and that was shipped to Yemen. That took also about six months to get to Aden. Once it got to Aden, we could not get it out. Our car queued in line to get into the port for four months to get into the port. When I asked what is the problem, they said one of it is political, one is logistical. The political is they are delaying us. The logistical is the port is small, cannot accommodate all the, you know, all the commodities that are coming. And we all know that Hadeida is the largest port in Yemen, but now it's restricted. So once we got that, 
the medicine. Now we've lost a lot of shelf life for the medicine. We were able to deliver immediately to the Aden Cancer Center. Then we tried to ship it to Sana'a because we were also going to distribute in Sana'a and Hudaydah. It got stopped in Ib. Now we need to pay tariff for the government in Sana'a because you know, we didn't have the proper paper, which I didn't know we needed to because the last time that wasn't a problem. So we did get the paperwork. It took us one month. That's, again, another month lost in medicine that's very much needed that's not available in the market. But on top of that, we had to pay the driver and the car that were <laughs> impounded, right? Anyway, so that's another experience. A third experience is we tried to send another time water filter to deal with the cholera outbreak. We couldn't find a company that was willing to take our water filters, not a single company from the US. We had to ship to South Africa, and then from South Africa, they shipped to Aden. That's the impact that people are getting from knowing that shipping to Yemen is a problem. There are ships that stay at sea for 82 days before they're allowed into a port. Who would want to do that? So these are a lot of the issues that we are facing. Um, what is the effect of that? We don't want to ship to Yemen. I've had companies that have come to me that they want to donate much needed medicine, much needed medical equipments. I don't want to do that. It's too, you know, just to try and find a company to send the water filters, it took us months. And to have to ship to South Africa is, is problematic. And then to ship from Aden to different parts. Uh, now we have so many checkpoints. I was in Yemen uh, in June and, and July of this year. I arrived to Aden and then had to take a car uh, from Aden to Sana'a. There are some checkpoints, uh, especially under uh, the government in Riyadh uh, areas, where Salafis are in there. And they're not going to be happy with a woman riding with a, a male driver. So we had, they would call us and say, that checkpoint, he cannot pass through it. So we had to take you know, even longer routes. Uh, it took me 16 hours to get to, from Aden to Sana'a at $400 cost. And the normal, the normal trip is? The normal trip is six hours. It used to take me from my home in the US to my parents' home in Sana'a, 18 hours. It took me four days. And I'm the lucky one because I have an American passport. Other people get stopped. Um, and arrested at the airport in Aden. I have a lot of people who cannot travel to Aden because they cannot guarantee that they will be able to get through. I have a student who is doing his PhD at the American University of Beirut who stopped in Marib now. He's been there for 10 days. He cannot get out. So when the, ch the points of entry to Yemen are controlled by one party, it's very challenging for the rest of the community. And all the points of entries are in areas that are least populated in Yemen. The large population centers, are, they cannot travel through those. Whether it's Sana'a, whether it's Hudayda, whether it's Ta'iz, whether it's Ib, all of these where really the large population centers are blocked. So, and I also, I think, want to end with um, a personal story. My sister, who was being treated for breast cancer, um, needed some medicine. 
wasn't available in Sana'a because commercial imports are restricted. We were able to buy it for her from Egypt, by the, and the fastest way to get it to her was to ship it to Djibouti and then Sana'a. By the time it got there, she didn't need it. Jamila died a month after the medicine got in. This is one of million stories. This is a story of someone who could afford to buy the medicine. I want you to imagine the millions of Yemenis who can't afford a meal to eat. Thank you, Aisha. Uh, Peter, you have done more work than anybody I know about how conflict economies work and perpetuate themselves. We've had two, two perspectives on what it's like from the bottom, what it's like from the top. How does it look in the middle? Who's making money? Who's playing what game here? So, and, and thank you so, so much both, and thank you to CSS for, for hosting me. I don't think I can really top the grand up view that, that Aisha's just, just given us. Um, but a lot of the, the work that I've done over the last four or five years has been about this question of not looking at the, the conflict just as who's fighting who, but looking at a political economy which is deeply interconnected and trying to understand the conflict, its impact, and, and how we might resolve the conflict through that, that lens. Um, and really, having spent a fair amount of time on the ground over the past year, I think we can, we can break Yemen down into two broad groups. One are the groups who are at the, the, the senior political level, the senior military level, who are contesting legitimacy, they're contesting power, they're contesting economic resources. And then you've got everybody else who are doing their best to survive on a day-to-day -day basis under extremely difficult circumstances and trying to overcome just these little minor daily challenges which add up into one just phenomenal piece. I mean, you hear that description of 16 hours to get from Aden to Sana'a. Um, how difficult it is, how many months it takes to get medicine in for one sick family member. And you think about sort of family units where individuals are becoming increasingly responsible for large swaths of their family, which is very Yemeni, and it's the great thing. It's the thing that keeps Yemen so resilient. And then on the flip side of that, you've got groups who are accumulating really massive amounts of, of resources and have been since before the war. And when we look at the, the political economy broadly, before the conflict with my Chatham House colleagues, we did a very big study in 2013 where we talked about the, the political economy dynamics, the, the competition for resources, the competition for control of the states and the economy, and how that really led to the, the fighting that we saw in 2011. And we saw really a, a pretty much unchanged situation during that transitional period, and we warned that a civil war could be imminent because that sort of low level, that sort of subsurface fight continued, that struggle continued slightly behind the, the scenes. And violence is often a consequence of something, not just a means in itself. And what we've seen since the conflict began is the continuation of many of the pre-war political elites, but their interests have been damaged. They've been reduced to certain areas of the country and certain economic activities. And the emergence of new economic elites who are very, very closely tied to the key conflict actors. So in the north, we've seen a, a new group of conflict actors who are close to the leadership of the Houthis, unsurprisingly. And we've seen the diminishment 
of economic actors tied to the GPC and ISLA, the two big pre-war um, political parties in Marib. We've seen the rise of new groups who are gaining new economic interests because of their closeness to the governor, the government, and to ISLA to an extent, and certain tribal leaders. And now, after the takeover of Aden in the south, we're seeing the emergence of people who would like to take over economic assets there. And once people get money, once people sort of start accumulating power, resource, and social position, it's very, very difficult to get them to simply give those things up in the name of peace. And there are large numbers of actors in Yemen across the board for whom it's in their interests to continue the perpetuation of the conflict because the end of the conflict spells sort of a, a big lost year for them financially, economically. A properly functioning market that is somewhat regulated spells the end of their, their business interests. So we end up in this place where there are groups of people who are really the people who are being brought into the room and asked to make peace, many of whose sort of close allies um, are incentivized to continue the conflict, although not all, it has to be said. And then you have the average Yemeni who is trying to scratch out a living um, in a context where the economy has been very, very badly damaged. We were already talking about the Arab world's poorest country um, before the 2011 uprising. Over the course of 2011, we saw the poverty rate to shoot up to over 50% of the population. I don't know what the exact percentage is now, but we're talking about 18 million people in need of some form of humanitarian assistance, roughly two-thirds of the country, and realistically probably more than that. Um, and the main jobs for people, when you speak to people in Hodeida, San'a, um, Taz, and, and Aden, and other parts of the country, in sort of the most conflict-afflicted or the most sort of politically-afflicted parts of the country, are really twofold. You, or threefold, you can work for an armed group, so you can pick up a gun. You can work for the local authority, be they sort of internationally legitimized or de facto, or you can work for an NGO. And none of these are sustainable. None of these produce jobs in, in the long term. So the challenges that we, we see in, in Yemen are long term in, in nature. This was a poor country that had been mismanaged. There was this competition over resources, and we saw the, these elites accumulate resources. The conflict, in many ways, is an offshoot of that competition for resource and for power. And now we're seeing all these groups who've accumulated sort of their own sets of, of power, their own sets of resource who are incentivized to continue the conflict, and a population which is dependent on income streams that only really exist during, during the, the war. So when we come to the end of the conflict, which we, we hope is near, but, but realistically it doesn't look like that, that's really the, the case, this competition will perpetuate itself throughout. So that's kind of the, the middle level, if, if you, you like, but it's so great to be able to sort of speak to, to that sort of after such sort of vivid and real descriptions of how that really, really impacts people's lives. See, but what, what Peter's described isn't unique, that when humanitarian actors are trying to get assistance in, that there are local actors who try to use it to play their own games. From the, the organizational perspective, how do you think about that problem? How do you treat it? How do you try to minimize it and ensure that the maximum aid is getting to the people who need it? Yeah, I mean, needless to say, it's a very, it's a delicate balance, and it is always, um, as one of my colleagues said the other day very astutely, it's always a live co conversation for humanitarian organizations. 
Um, and, you know, in some ways, um, and here I'm going to be a little bit self-referential, but I'm going to try to take ba myself back to my own um, challenge that we need to not be so self-referential, but in some ways humanitarian organizations are given a near impossible task because we are being asked to help keep people alive um, amidst a brutal conflict where most of those who are providing funding um, for assistance are also, in this case, um, parties to the conflict. Um, and um, getting aid to those in need um, in an active war zone, needless to say, is always a complicated proposition. Um, it's clearly made worse when you have authorities across the country, and we just heard about the sort of different ranges of those and the, and the sort of games um, and power struggles that they might be about. Um, but authorities across the country um, who, first of all, because of the way that the country is being managed at the moment means that for a humanitarian organization, you have multiple authorities that you constantly need to be getting approvals from, depending on which part of the country you're working in, and, um, and constantly changing circumstances, and where there are constant rent-seeking seeking opportunities, right? So, um, so, you know, putting pressure on agencies to do things like share beneficiary data, and there's been a very public case um, involving the World Food Program about that in the Yemen context context, placing restrictions on the types of programming that can be done, on where that programming can happen. So a live example, um, just one, is growing restrictions on the ability to do programming related to gender-based violence in emergencies and sexual and reproductive health and rights um, in the northern part of the country. Um, uh, where there is just delay in project approvals, delay in getting things in. I mean, we have similar examples from the care side of where we bring solar water pumps into the country, and for some reason it is required um, by some of the authorities in question that those get broken up into a series of different boxes because apparently they look like something that could be threatening when they're coming in. And so, again, that's just one of a myriad of examples, right, where, um, where then that just delays and confuses things and maybe some of the boxes get in but not all of the parts and whatever and you got to put it back together. Um, so, and then, you know, restrictions on customs processes, restrictions on visas, the list goes on. And, you know, it's not that these are necessarily unique to the Yemen context, but I think as I indicated at the beginning, there is a kind of breadth of them um, that is made more complicated by some of both what Aisha and Peter talked about. Um, Navigating this restrictive env environment requires an active conversation um, because on the one hand you have humanitarian principles, right, and those of us who are operating from the humanitarian perspective with an imperative around addressing human suffering wherever it is found. Um, you have to balance that with the principles of neutrality and impartiality and independence, which, um, you know, upon which, you know, those are the bedrock principles of the humanitarian system and which, um, among other things, are incredibly important from um, a sort of access and safety perspective. And, um, and, you know, again, Yemen is not the only place in which humanitarian actors are, are operating across um, the lines of conflict. I think it's, it's a more complicated environment, um, and I, in, in, but in a, in a way it's also a sort of a perfect exemplar. Um, it's not only authorities within Yemen who are putting restrictions, by the way, on the ability to operate and the ability to get access, because you have to layer on top of that um, restrictions that are put in place by donors. 
Um, uh, often, and, and you know, there was a very live and good conversation in this room just a bit earlier about some of the um, the ways in which counterterrorism restrictions, for example, um, impact the ability to um, to get access to populations and and force that kind of constant decision-making and balance and negotiation, right, both with authorities on the ground um, and with your donors and with yourselves about where do you draw the line, right, as between needing and wanting to access people in need wherever they happen to be. Um, across whatever line of conflict, in this case, they happen to be, with this idea that um, both you have to comply with a whole bunch of restrictions that are being placed on you and, um, and the kind of neutrality and impartiality piece of it. Um, Humanitarian organizations, needless to say, spend an enormous amount of resources these days ensuring that aid doesn't get into the hands of bad actors. Um, uh, but counterterrorism policies and other regulatory regimes that are imposed to prevent material support um, from getting to designated terrorist groups can also just threaten humanitarian access. Um, and again, I mean, I think there was a good conversation about that earlier today. Um, but uh, but you know, it's a very it's a it's a very fine balance. And I, I am struck often by the fact that those who are imposing some of those kinds of restrictions on humanitarian actors are the same people or the same organizations, governments, that are giving humanitarian organizations money to go in and run programs and operations that they want to be done. And they know full well the situation in which we are operating. Um, and um, and so there is a bit of um, a kind of a double-edged. I mean, I don't want to. I don't. I mean, I could use any kind of. I don't want to say hypocrisy, right? But there's a bit of a of a of a funny challenge there to us. And at the end of the day, we're a bit pawns in a big political game, right? Over which we ultimately have very little control. So we can do things like try to comply with restrictions. We can do things like try to avoid, as best as possible, stuff getting to bad actors. We can improve our own ability to negotiate with bad actors to try to gain access in particular situations. But ultimately, and again, this gets back to the point I made earlier, you know, it's about this kind of high-level political stuff. Um, and, um, and there's a bit of a funny game, I think, that goes on sometimes, quite honestly. And, and Peter, you've written about the sort of ecosystem where aid and corruption all sort of feed on each other and are hard to dislodge. Could you, could you sort of take what, what Chiba said and, and, and sort of give us a more <clears throat> systemic sense of how this, how this creates a, a self-sustaining environment? Sure. Um, I think ecosystem is, is really the, the right word to, to use there. Um, we did a big study at Chatham House that, that came out a couple of months ago where we looked at Syria, Libya, Iraq, and, and uh, Yemen. Um, and there was a great deal of debate about what constituted an e a conflict economy. And the, the point that we came to was this, this idea, this analytical framework of you really have to look at the ecosystem as a whole. Um, what does aid do? In many cases, it replaces uh, something that the state is not providing, or it replaces the loss of economic activity where conflict has reduced or entirely ended economic opportunity in that area. So first and foremost, what we see are actors who are increasingly, increasingly do not feel the need to provide those services. 
who increasingly are less worried about these things and in fact can use sort of the media lens to, to sell the idea that it's someone else's fault that the economy isn't working. So everyone pointing fingers at, at one another. And then on top of that, we have the, the fact that as a sort of not an entirely sort of strategically planned out and thought through consequence of territorial control, certain groups are going to operate on the ground and be able to operate on the ground, and they will necessarily have ties to the groups, the guys with guns, who control that, that area. And, and certainly in some parts of Yemen, that's been a big part of the problem that WFP and others have been trying to unpick. Many big INGOs, including, well, if we call the UN an INGO, but WFP and others have to work with local partners for a variety of reasons from politics to, to security. And the only local partners available to them often are quite closely tied to the local de facto or, or internationally legitimate authorities. So we end up in this, this situation where the only partner you have on the ground is someone who's intimately tied to someone else. And in delivering aid, you're sort of taking the, the pressure off that authority to, to do sort of the job of a, a government. Um, so those are the sort of the, the ethical considerations. But what's been really interesting, I would argue, has been to, to watch what WFP have done, for better and for, for worse, over the last six months to a year in their negotiations with the Houthis, with Ansar Allah, to kind of take back control, if you like. Um, although that's a slightly tainted phrase, I suppose, at this point in time, but to take back control of their operations in Yemen, to gain more oversight over what's happening um, on, on the ground, and to push the authorities into to working with them. So we can see that sort of the right mix of incentives can allow for a little more, bit more accountability and transparency, but they had to cut off um, all um, uh, delivery of, of food aid for, for almost two months, which is yeah, a big price to be paying. And Aisha, you know how this looks from the ground up in Yemen. Yemen has had a history of, of uh, tribal influence, has had a history of, of regional leaders, it's had a history of struggles between a central government and, and, uh, and local governments. Uh, and it's had a history of people finding ways to cooperate across lines. We've heard a lot from a 30,000-foot level. Give us from the five-foot level. How, does it, how, do, how do Yemenis respond to these kinds of incentives? What kinds of opportunities are there if we understand Yemen instead of understanding, instead of focusing solely on the, the, the global aspects of how conflicts unfold? What's the Yemen piece that we need to be aware of? Thank you. Um, I'll start with two proverbs, and, and Yemenis love, they have a proverb for everything. Um, so the, one of the proverbs that is, relates to this is when you do something good, a good deed, you need to throw it to, to the ocean. And the principle behind that is you don't expect anything back, and that's what aid is about. You do it and throw it to the ocean. But the other part of it is that the waves will take it also to somewhere else you don't know where, and give it to someone who needs it somewhere else. Uh, the second one is uh, from a, a book by um, Eric Hansen. Um, he went to Yemen and wrote a book called Motoring with Muhammad. I actually highly recommend it. I don't know Eric, so there is no conflict of interest here. <laughs> 
uh, and he said, you know, he landed in Yemen accidentally, um, and he, with nothing, and he got help from everyone, whether from the guy that he rented a motorcycle with to drive him around to, you know, the prime minister of Yemen. And every time he would ask people, what can I do for you in return? They will tell him, help someone else in need, no matter where you are. That's how you pay us back. And, and that, these are very important principles for working in Yemen because people understand that we need to help one another regardless of how we define ourselves. And I think it's important to recognize that people are very complex beings. Um, we're not, you know, for one thing or against it. We have issues um, that we like and we agree with other, some people with, we disagree with other things. And um, Peter was men mentioning er earlier that within the Yemen context, you have one brother working with one group and the second brother working in another group. So, and, and that just shows you the complexity. It's not, you know, you're with me 100% of the time. This concept of you're with me or against me just doesn't work in real life. Uh, and so Yemenis find ways where they can work together, regardless of their political affiliation or political parties or ideologies. So when I was in Yemen this time, I met with both uh, the Minister of Health in Sana'a and the Minister of Health in Aden. And we talked about, you know, how can we deliver aid in both places without having issues? And I focus on health because that's, that's what I know best. And they, they both would agree that yes, you, you know, we can work together, and yes, we can work with the government in Sana'a on some aspects, and the fact that the immunization program, the malaria program, and a lot of these programs are still working together with the central location in Sana'a. And when the vaccine comes to Sana'a, it's being able to deliver to all the places, they make the plans together. So the, the, the culture is there for that to happen. We work with local organizations and we work also with locals at, throughout Yemen. So if I'm doing uh, some work in Sada, um, I work with people from Sada. First of all, they know the area better than I do. They have the access and they also know the people who are in need. And uh, believe me, I work with so many different groups uh, in Yemen. Some of them, I can't stand their politics, and some of them, they can't stand that uh, a Yemeni woman who is not covered and who is not at home. Uh, but they're willing to work with me because we have a common interest, and that common interest is that we need to help people who are in need. So when it comes to that, is these are people in need, you really can bring a lot of people together despite their having opposing views or opposing politics. So, and I think we need to, uh, to capitalize on this uh, as aid uh, agencies. And I think also um, that the other thing for me is that fr from the, at least the region, people are categorized in Yemen into boxes. And we tend to like to do that. So the people under the Houthi or the people under the Saudi control or the people under the Emirati control, once we start boxing people that way, it makes it very challenging to uh, work with that. Not recognizing that people under the Houthi are not all with Ansar Allah and people under um, 
and then they're not all for uh, the separatist group. So the, there is that diversity that we have to acknowledge and reach out to people. We have projects that we will be working with uh, in Aden and in Sana'a. We got approvals from uh, the two governments, at least when I was there. And now there is a different environment. Uh, the Minister of Health uh, that was in Aden is no longer in Aden because of the recent conflict in Aden. So we're not going to stop our work in Aden. We reached out to another group in Aden, from Aden, and they will carry our work there. So again, find partners, find people who can work in that environment. Even if I can't go there because I'm considered from the north, I still have people there that I can work with. Uh, so again, uh, reach out. Reach out to people who are very different from you, uh, as long as they can do the work and do it well. Um, I would dearly love to monopolize the wisdom of this terrific panel, but I'm told I'm not allowed to. So we have some roving microphones. Uh, we have about a half hour, a little more, for discussion. Uh, if I could ask you to raise your hand, to wait for a microphone, to identify yourself, and just because we have a full room and there may be many questions, to just ask one question so we can try to address as many people as possible. So I see a hand right here in the third row. Thank you, Mesh. Thank you very much for the panel and the discussion. My name is Zahir Sahlul. I'm the president of MedGlobal. Uh, we have sent medical missions to Yemen. I've been in Yemen in the last two years three times to Ma'rib, Al-Jawf, Adan, and Taz. And um, uh, I think we have to start by uh, saying that we are all indebted to the people of Yemen where humanity originated, uh, if you read Homo sapiens. Your name also originated from Yemen. And I visited the Queen uh, of Sheba uh, place in Ma'rib. Uh, very nice historic sites. But my comment is about a couple of things. Uh, we're planning for a large medical mission in November. We had actually 50 applications from doctors and nurses who want to go to Yemen. We have to choose only 20. Uh, we're going to Ma'rib and Sayoun. The problem is the long time to get visa uh, to Yemen, uh, even for doctors and nurses. Um, and also, the on, there's more or less only one airline, which is Yemeniya airline, which is quite unpredictable and expensive, more expensive than our airlines here to get into Yemen. Um, so maybe comments about these issues. Sometimes we think that access like, means security and people bombing and stuff like that. There's, in the area we go to, it's not like that. But actually getting into Yemen is very difficult for people who want to help. Um, when you get into Yemen, actually, the areas I went to, is uh, people are very generous, very safe. Uh, Yemenis are very warm people. Um, the other thing that maybe has been ignored always, we always focus on cholera and uh, malnutrition, which are present. But we ignore the fact that most people suffer from chronic diseases, diabetes, uh, heart diseases, and cancer. And these things are ignored completely by the international community. And that's where the direction should be uh, towards. Yeah, I mean, I can start. Um, and just, I, I mean, I think we've alluded to those challenges um, that you put on the table, but those, for sure, those are just a set, a, a yet another layer of some of the access challenges. It's just things like the difficulty of getting visas, the long wait time for that, and the difficulty of getting into the country from the outside, um, in particularly, particularly in a context in which um, you know, the Sana Airport has been um, shut down to commercial traffic since August of 2000. 
2016, I think. Um, and, um, and, you know, just to note that for those of us who work inside of Yemen, um, and, you know, CARE has been in Yemen since 1993, I think 98% of our staff um, is Yemeni. So it's not like we're trying to bring in a lot of people from the outside all the time. On the occasions when we do, um, we face those same kinds of challenges. Um, uh, also, you know, the need to get uh, approval from often both authorities, even if you're just going to one place. And we talked a bit about that the other day on the phone, right? So even if you're going to uh, to Aden, you have to get authority, you have to get approval from the authorities in Sanaa, and um, I mean, uh, vice versa. But in any event, it's it's a it's a very complicated landscape um, to get in if you are trying to do that. Um, and, um, and so, I mean, I think it's right to put that kind of challenge on the table. I think, you know, um, the broader question that you raise, uh, you know, the health system inside of Yemen, and I'm sure Aisha can speak very eloquently to this, has just been further and further degraded as the course of the war has gone on. And so, um, you know, hats off to you and your efforts to get doctors in from the outside um, in a context in which hospitals are being bombed, um, not fully functioning. We heard the, um, you know, really um, tragic story of your sister. We had a staff member in Aden um, who similarly was from a family that could have afforded medical care um, and um, died during childbirth because um, she couldn't get the blood transfusion that she needed. Um, but again, I want to a little bit flip the proposition on its head because one can imagine, um, and I alluded to the fact earlier that Yemenis by and large when they are displaced by the conflict have been displaced inside the country. That's for various reasons, including the blockade. Um, right, and so you have people across the country who are trapped in the country in a need, desperate need of medical care and can't get out because of things like the Sana'a airport being closed. And so, um, so that is where I want to make sure that we always bring our focus back, right? Because, um, because we want to get as much help in as we can from the outside. And the fact that that becomes even more challenged by things like inordinate and unreasonable delays um, in length of time for visas and customs issues, et cetera. But just also always have to remember how much it's impacting people on the inside. Yeah, um, you, you're talking about something that I experienced, and I'm a Yemeni. Uh, so for me to travel to Yemen, I have to submit my name to the Saudi authorities to get approval. The, American, the Yemeni airline that you talk about that only has access to two ports, one is in Seyoun and one is in Aden, again, very far from major population centers and very sparsely populated. Um, the Yemeni air, airline had to get permission to fly from the Saudi authorities. So when I went to Jordan this time to fly to Yemen, and you're right, it's $1,000 for a two-way ticket from Jordan to Aden, um, they weren't allowed to fly. So there are a lot of people who get caught, and these are Yemeni who don't need a visa to get to Yemen, uh, not able to, they, they get stuck in airports. Um, I have a U.S. passport. I was able to get to Jordan, spend the night, and um, get called the next day and say, yeah, you can come in, the flight is going to go through. So yeah, there are a lot of restrictions upon, you know, upon the population, the Yemeni population. So I'm not surprised uh, that you mentioned what you're experiencing. We do need to lift the blockade on Yemen.
Hi, my name is Agram Ferrari, and I'm a humanitarian practitioner with international development consulting firm, uh, IAPS. So the, the question that I really want to ask is more from organizational perspective and readiness as a humanitarian provider. What is that we are doing to adapt to the new normal, which is Syria, Yemen, and every other crisis are different? We are suggesting that local authorities are imposing a lot of restrictions. But at the same time, when we are delivering the aid, we have to work with local authorities. In many instances, are we increasing the legitimacy of those local authorities? And the aid is often delivered by local nationals who are well-trained, but then in many instances directed by local authorities where the aid is mostly needed because that's how quickly we can deliver. We submit proposals. They are approved a year after submission local circumstances have changed. So what is that we are doing as CARE, as Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation to adapt to the new circumstances and change the organizational posture and training of our local staff so we as an organization are relevant at understanding the context, adapting to this context and educating the donors and international public that it's not only about local authorities and access, it's about us being ready, prepared and, and able to maneuver that environment and say, hey, that's, a, that's an environment that we're working in and this is how we're gonna deal with that. So any perspective on how CARE as a massive organization is able or not able to adapt and train new wave of humanitarian providers. Sheba, I'm sure, has thoughtful things to say. I also want to drag Peter into this uh, on the more systemic level as well. I mean, you know, look, we're a big behemoth NGO. We adapt in our own time. Um, no, in seriousness, I mean, I think it's a very thoughtful question. And, um, and you know, we have a humanitarian system uh, that originally really uh, grew up um, to, uh, to respond to natural disaster. And we find ourselves in a world in which, and we all know the statistics, um, unprecedented numbers of forcibly displaced people around the world, unprecedented um, amount of humanitarian need across the world, and operating, I mean, I think by latest estimates, somewhere over 90% of the humanitarian work that we do as care is in long-term protracted crisis and conflict situations. Um, and so it's not, I think, only a question of how individual organizations adapt, because that's important, but it is about how our entire ecosystem and sector is adapting. And um, there's a lot of thoughtful work um, that is coming out even right now about that, and I think it relates very directly to some of what Aisha has put on the table in terms of, um, you know, the need really uh, to start shifting power dynamics, right, and to start shifting um, the way in which we provide aid. So yes, we need to ad be adaptive in any particular context in which we're working, including because those contexts often change very rapidly, right, and over the course of a conflict. Um, and by the way, and this was also something that was raised in the earlier panel, I think, very articulately, um, in a context in which the funding sources that we have don't actually engender an enormous amount or enable a lot, an enormous amount of flexibility and adaptability, right? And, and the level of restrictions that any organization like CARE operates on when taking institutional funding, the risks that are shoved down on us for operating in these environments and that we then in turn are forced to often pass on to local actors and entities that are actually implementing the aid is kind of unbelievable. And we get 
really good at things like remote management, and we learn a lot from contexts like Syria. Um, and so, you know, you're, so I, I think some of it is all the time sort of taking what you've learned also in one context and being able to apply it in, in another. Um, I am a big proponent of, um, of always putting on the table the need to diversify the funding sources that are funding the humanitarian system because I think ultimately the getting to the kind of adaptability and flexibility and getting real about localization of aid um, is going to require that. Uh, but, um, but, you know, I think a lot of it is just, um, you know, our learning to work in different kinds of contexts. And, you know, I just would always challenge us as a, as a sector to make sure that we're not only learning as care, okay, what worked in the Syria context from a remote management perspective or what have you, and are we able to take that somewhere else? Um, but what are we doing, lifting our heads up as a sector to understand that, hey, the world we're operating in is incredibly different. And um, it's not enough to talk about better coordination, and it's not enough to always just talk about things like long-term funding. All those things are important, but we need to be thinking much more fundamentally about, about how we need to change um, you know, the op how we operate as a humanitarian sector, given the world that we're operating in. Um, and that's a deep challenge, um, and I hope we're up to it. Um, a good question and a really challenging question. Um, a lot of my, my work in the, the research and sort of more academic realm has been about political economy. Um, and the, the conversation you'd have with people working on aid and, and development, even five, six years ago, was very much about how these weren't political and how they wanted, people wanted to stay out of politics. And the shift that I've seen as a non-practitioner but an analyst and a, a researcher has definitely been the move towards a recognition that you need political economy analysis tools embedded into the way that you think about your, your operations. Um, we're seeing people doing actor mapping, people using sort of data and live reporting from the field to get a much better sense of the context that they're operating in, in ways that were probably done informally before, um, but weren't really utilized. And we're seeing a lot of the, the big INGOs really looking at models for how do you transmit data, how do you monitor things on a, a really live basis. And that's really important. But I think there's also a requirement there for, for new skill sets to be built in, which are almost sort of internal mediation, internal diplomacy between aid agencies so they can sort of collectively bargain with local authorities, um, and then just understanding the political context and identifying champions within sort of local actors who, who are actually in favor of accountability, transparency, aid, aid delivery. But all of that is a big drag in terms of, of resource it requires really sort of upskilling or adding new stuff to already massively overloaded organizations and then trying to work out how to overlay that on operations. So it's, it's a really big ask, but I think we're going to see a shift among a lot of the humanitarian organizations towards this model of really, really doing great analysis on, on the, the ground. And then we get into ethical considerations of whether or not that should really go any further than those, those organizations. 
I mean, just to add on that, I, I think that's exactly right. It is something that we are doing more and more. Um, and believe me, it is something that we are also talking to donors about more and more the need to fund. Because um, for sure, uh, you know, ha being able to do that kind of contextual analysis and understand where, you know, the changes that are occurring always in the context in which you're operating, but really just having that feel um, for the operating environment, is a, it, it is different um, in kind than it was. Um, and I think it's going to only continue that we'll have that need. Hi, uh, Trevor Keck, ICRC. Um, thanks so much for this great panel and sharing all of your insights. Wondering if um, each of you, if you dare, could share a, a bit about where you think the, the conflict is going more broadly. Um, obviously, nine months ago or so, there was a lot more optimism around the political process um, with the Stockholm Agreement having been achieved. and. Now the events over the last, uh, at least the last week and, and, and more, um, obviously risk or, or demonstrate an increased risk of Yemen sort of being um, uh, pulled into sort of regional and, and global tension. So just wondering if you could comment on that if, if you wish. <laughs> um, Yemeni women are very brave. <laughs> And, and you know, I, I'll go to the principle that the U.S. has, that um, you build a good military as a deterrent. Um, and so if I look at it from that perspective, the event of last week hopefully will make people realize that the risk for the region, um, the whole region will be burned, basically, if we're not able to stop this. So. Um, I'm going to be more optimistic and say that if level-headed people sit together and realize the risk, um, not just for Yemen, uh, for Iran, for Saudi Arabia, for um, the Emirates, which are the, the key players uh, in what's going on right now, if they're level-headed, I think they will realize they have to stop. So the the phrase that I've been using when I look at the Yemeni actors on the ground, sort of removing that sort of macro level um, regional piece for the, the past sort of three to six months is consolidation and bargaining, where we're, we're definitely seeing the key actors on the ground, and there are very clearly identifiable centers of power in terms of the political and armed groups, consolidating their position in preparation for some form of, of future bargaining. Um, and absent a major shift in the way that people train and equip the different groups on, on the ground, the broad expectation is that we're not going to see sort of huge shifts in, in the hot war on, on the ground. The problem for Yemen is this overlay of regional dynamics and, and tensions. I would argue that most of the Yemeni groups physically on the ground, physically operating as armed groups, as governance actors, be it tribal leaders, are pretty much done. They're pretty, they're pretty ready to have this over and to work out some kind of settlement that can then be used to build something that looks a bit like sustainable peace, although we're very far away from that. The problem we have is that Yemen was seen at the beginning of the war as a regional proxy fight, and that has really become something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. There are, I'm sure, plenty of people in the room who would disagree with me. I still feel, and my analysis is still, that the key groups 
are only wedded to external actors insofar as those people meet their interests and allow them to serve their internal agendas. Um, and that over time, in the event of uh, some form of settlement, sort of those external relationships will shift and, and change. But as long as external actors see utility in using Yemeni, Yemen as a quote-unquote um, front line in, in sort of their regional Cold War, we're going to have this, this problem of people won't want to end this war because it will be a sign of weakness and it will undermine their ability to pursue sort of the, the regional peace. So Yemen more and more intertwined, at least in people's minds, with this, this regional peace, while really, really upsettingly, the local actors move more and more towards a position where they're, I mean, the, the phrase in, in peace studies is they're, they're closer to being ripe for peace. That's not the whole story, and, and we know it, but we're closer towards being in a place where the hot war can be ended to an extent, and we can start having real conversations about what that means uh, as a political settlement, but the regional peace is now so explosive, um, and I think there was an opportunity this year to extricate Yemen from that. And it required people talking to people um, that they didn't want to. It required the, the Houthis, the Saudis, and the United States opening channels of communication and working out what they needed to get to a place um, where, where Yemen could be taken out of the, the regional conflict. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Obviously, the events of the weekend draw Yemen right back in. And also share a, an example uh, of what Peter just said. So every time there are negotiations to release prisoners where the Saudis are involved, that never happens. But this past week, negotiations to release prisoners within the country without the Saudi and Emirati actors, and actually that happened. So every time the Yemenis meet in Yemen and decide on what they want to do, they actually implement their agreements. So once the international actors are out of it, the Yemenis can actually uh, reach agreements and execute them. Thank you. Jed, there's a woman right behind you who had a question. Thanks. Um, thank you. So we've talked about the need for, I'm sorry, oh, Hannah Peterson um, from the Frank Batten School. Um, so we've talked about the need for cooperating with local actors in aid distribution, and often those actors are controversial and politically charged. So how do you then reconcile that with the foundation of the humanitarian imperative and neutrality and impartiality and the importance of remaining neutral as a humanitarian provider? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I spoke to this a little bit earlier, and so um, would welcome my fellow panelists having, you know, adding any additional thoughts here. Um, you know, it's not so much about coordinating with um, local bad actors on the ground, but um, having a realistic view um, and picture and level of engagement with the um, actors that you need to engage with in order to facilitate access. And I, I, I talked about the fact that for humanitarian organizations like ours, um, that is always a live and active set of conversations in any conflict environment in which we're, we're operating. Um, and finding that balance that you just talked about um, is, the, is the question, right? Um, and I think, you know, the way the WFP example played out is actually a bit instructive because, um, and, and Peter talked well to this, I think, but, um, but you know, it, it required ultimately WFP taking the inordinately difficult decision for a humanitarian organization 
um, to stop providing food aid to the people of Sana'a. Um, because they, it, they had just been stymied in their efforts to negotiate with the Houthis over sharing beneficiary data, which was, from their perspective, um, you know, so it was just a bridge too far, what the Houthis were trying to demand in that particular context. And ultimately, what that led to was two months of a cutoff of food assistance, but now, thankfully, it has been restarted. Um, and that's in the context, then, of WFP having wrested some greater control back to itself to be able to define the terms of how that's going to happen so that there will be a process going forward which protects principled action and also enables provision of assistance. That's the sort of the sweet spot. Um, and, um, but life is messy. And I think we've heard a lot about that on the stage. And, um, and so I think that's where it's also always important to remember, um, I think, what we've talked about from all levels, both ultimately what the aim is here, which is to get as much assistance as possible to people in need throughout the life of this conflict. And I thank the person who just put the question on the table about the war, because that's really where we need to get, which is ending the war, right? Um, and the sort of comp the, the additional complicating factor that a lot of the restrictions that we operate under are not only driven by local authorities in any particular context, but also may be imposed by donors, um, just sort of further complicating the ability to both be able to provide principled humanitarian assistance and to comply with the fundamental principles that enable us to operate in any setting around neutrality, impartiality, and independence. Thank you. Uh, Umar Khan from Lutheran World Relief. Um, thank you to the panel for the great conversation. I appreciate it. Aisha, you and I may have been in Aden at the same time. Uh, wish we had overlapped and met there. Um, what I've learned from going into Yemen, obviously, is that getting into Yemen is as difficult as getting out of there. So that speaks to the complexity of that environment. Two quick questions. Uh, one on, on access. Um, from what I observed on the ground, the needs are immense, obviously, as you all agree, and there is need for new actors and more actors to come and help and get involved. But the tricky point is, where do you get into? Do you go to the south or do you go to the north? If you go to the south, what message do you send to the north? Or if you go to the north, what message do you send to the south? So I was told on the ground that you know getting established in the south and then sending at the same time a message to the north starting process of registration would send a positive message that you didn't prioritize one over another. I was wondering if you could give us your perspective on how that can be navigated. My second uh, question is probably more related to the, the integration of development work with humanitarian assistance. Not the entire country is not on fire, so there's, there's pockets, a very good economy that, that can be stimulated, or at least they are at, the, you know, at a point where they can be um, uh, saved from falling, uh, from failing. I wonder if uh, Shiba, maybe for you, care uh, as an established organization, you have such programs that actually work in combination with humanitarian assistance in stimulating local economy and what we can learn from that. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So um, our work actually is throughout Yemen. We work both. Um, in, in the south as well as in the north. And we are a small organization. And I will tell you, we only have one paid staff that started in August. Everybody is a volunteer. So it, that makes it very easy for us uh, because we identify the people that we need to work with. And for our 
food supplies for our school supplies, everything that we need. And that's why I said I'm, it's, I'm really not interested at this point in time in shipping to Yemen because of the challenges we are facing. But we buy from the local economy. So if I'm working in Sada, we are buying in Sada because I don't want to have to buy in Sana'a, for example, and ship it to Sada because there are so many checkpoints. By the time it gets to Sada, we will have zero uh, in our truck of anything. Uh, and so we, we, we purchase locally. That also helps the local market. And we know what people in that area like to eat. So for example, uh, this is something I didn't know. People in Sada like lentils. People in Jof don't like lentils. <laughs> so we buy lentils in Sada and we buy beans in Al Jof. We work actually in some of the most difficult areas in Yemen. We work in areas that are bordering Saudi Arabia where there is daily bombing. And the reason we're able to work there because we have people in those areas who live there, who volunteer for us. It's a matter of you know, sending money to them telling them what, is, what we need to purchase and getting the list of those who are receiving the aid, getting, uh, we, we, it's easier for us to get the lists uh, than WFP, of course. Uh, we're, we're dealing with you know, a few thousand people, not with millions of people. So to, in, in terms of operations inside Yemen, we have not encountered any problems. Same thing whether we are distributing in Aden or we're distributing in Lah, we're, we're working with local volunteers in those areas. For example, for the Eid holiday which just passed, which is the Feast of the Sacrifice, we had a budget, you know, a large budget where we were able to distribute uh, to 5,000 people two to three kilos of meat throughout all the areas. We had access to Aslim when nobody else could go to Aslim Hajjah. I don't know if you remember the story. That's where people were resorted to eating tree leaves because nobody could get there. Uh, we also reached places in mountains uh, where there are very small population sizes that it's very expensive for large international organizations to reach them. There are a few hundred uh, people. It's, you know, most of the time it's one family. When I look at the list of beneficiaries, they all have the last, same last name. So because we are a small organization, because we use local volunteers, we're, we have no hindrance in access within Yemen. It's the problem of getting things to Yemen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a very important um, reflection, the question around sort of the development um, uh, piece of the puzzle and, um, and whether now is the time to be starting that. And I would just note a couple of things. I mean, f first, there are some donors that are sort of um, slowly starting to, where able in the country to start funding development activities. Um, which is a good first step because that's, I mean, obviously we need to um, we need to be heading in that direction, both as you say, because there are parts of the country where you are able to do that and because one hopes that when and if the conflict ends, hopefully soon, um, that's where one would need to turn. I mean, you only have to think about the statistic um, that the estimates are that it's gonna cost um, at least $50 million just to restore the port of Hodaida to, um, to where it was, you know, how operational it was before the conflict. And that's just sort of, I mean, it's an incredibly important port as we heard, but that's just sort of one one piece of need among many. Um, from the care perspective, um, we have continued where we can to do the programming that we were doing um, before the conflict broke out. And so, as is often the case for those of us who are long-term operational um, in in countries around the world, um, you know, as I noted, we've been there since 1993 with the focus on um, program.
programming around women's economic empowerment, among other things. And where possible, we continue that programming, but we've had to really shift um, the focus uh, in the humanitarian space. And so, um, you know, we are also operational all, all over the country now in the, um, from a humanitarian perspective, providing particular types of assistance. But we do that always as CARE um, because we are a so-called dual mandate organization, right? Um, we do what we can along the way in the context of a humanitarian response to build resilience, to focus on things like livelihoods training um, and, um, and economic empowerment activities. Um, not only, sorry, not livelihoods training so much as just sort of like rebuilding and helping to support the rebuilding of livelihoods, um, helping where we can to make sure that local markets are sustained rather than supplanted by an aid operation. So um, emergency cash assistance as opposed to, you know, dumping of food items and that kind of thing. Um, but, um, uh, you know, one, one hopes that we will see more and more donors um, and development actors actually being willing to come into the space and, um, and start providing some of that long-term outlook. Um, and, um, and that's another, frankly, getting back to the question that was here a bit earlier, another challenge that we face by these new kinds of environments in which we're operating. It's just that um, humanitarian actors are, um, are being called uh, to, to task um, in context in which these crises are actually lasting for years and years and years. And so we're treating the humanitarian need, um, which we need to do, um, but we need to do that in a context in which development actors are also coming into the space. Um, um, and, and that also, by the way, requires donors having greater presence on the ground um, than they do and then they're sometimes willing to do um, in these kinds of very complicated crises. And Peter, you talked about getting off the the economy running essentially on security funding and into being more productive. The last time I was in Yemen was about 10 years ago, and it seemed to me that, that most of the economy ran on people in the security business. Either you provided security, you denied security, and outside of people who were paid to be part of one gang or another, there wasn't a lot of economic activity. How, how do you get off that into providing a sustainable economy for 30 million people in Yemen? So just the, the easy question, right? Uh, um, there's no simple answer to that. And I think it also speaks to the nature of the, the problem set that Yemen poses in general. There is not a short-term quick fix to any aspect of what is happening and has happened in, in Yemen. Um, I think a lot of the time we have conversations where people are looking for maybe not the one magic bullet, but the top five magic bullets for a country like like Yemen. How do we how do we fix this? And the answer is sort of twenty years of smart, engaged work, which is led by feedback from the the ground and not from from the middle air. Um, so not just sort of speaking to political actors and, and asking them, but sort of making sure through sort of good monitoring and evaluation as humanitarians would have it, but also like really thoughtful work. Um, the, the good thing about the Yemeni economy is there are a few countries where people are more entrepreneurial and spend a few days in Sana'a where you get sort of Wi-Fi provided by your local uh, bodega where everyone is on solar panels and if you're not on solar panels then you've got a wire attaching your house to your next door neighbors. The, the, level of invention and innovation that we've seen in Yemen through which people have sustained themselves <clears throat> and through which the, the big Yemeni businesses have played like a, a very positive role, I think, 
it's all it's all there. Um, but then you have the problem of education, of infrastructure, of healthcare. And I think something that's often overlooked when we talk about conflicts like this is sort of the psychological and traumatic impact of, of the conflict on the population at large and the deep polarization. Um, and again, there's no, there's no really easy, quick answer. But I think sort of the, for want of a better word, the raw material that you deal with in, in Yemen is sort of a mass of people who, who are very hardworking, very capable, um, and hilarious, which we don't really talk about uh, enough either when we talk about Yemen. It's a grim plight, but sort of what a fun place to, to work um, in, in terms of the, the human beings. So great potential at the human level, but how to sort of elevate that. And, and part of the answer is, how do you cut the political layer out and really make sure that the resources, the capacity building, the training, the infrastructure goes to people on the ground and isn't cut out at the, the, the mid-level, and I don't have a, a good answer to that at all. Before I let you all go, and we are coming to the end of the time, we have a quite remarkable audience jam-packing this room, and I want each of you to tell this audience what single thing do they need to go out of here and either believe or make happen to address the really complicated problems that we've described in Yemen. Peter, we're going to start with you and then come down the line. So we were asked to, to do this on a call yesterday, and I was struggling on the train this morning. I probably hadn't enough um, coffee. I, I, I think that, um, obviously, I, I now work for International Crisis Group, um, and we're very focused on peace and, and peace building. Absent some form of political settlement that stops the fighting, that allows trade to flow freely, that allows the banking system to operate properly, and allows people to think about a future beyond tomorrow morning, it, it's really difficult to foresee in any improvement in the humanitarian situation and, and the economy. So for us, the, the focus is very much on, on two things. The first is, how do you stop the war? And the second is, how do you build peace? And those are two very, very different things, unfortunately. One of them is, is deeply political, and the other is, is this complex big set of issues that we're talking about right now. But absent an end to the conflict, absent some form of political settlement, a lot of the, the suggestions and proposals and great ideas that are, that are out there really at the, the very best are about things, preventing things from getting worse rather than making them any better in a very bad situation. Um, I just want to say one thing. The Yemeni um, humanitarian crisis is man-made. It's not due to a natural cause. What, what that means to me, um, at least as a Yemeni American, it's the, bi the biggest ask for me, for you, is to lift the blockade on Yemen. The blockade, the, the reason it's man-made is not enough food, not enough medicine, not, not essential goods are allowed into Yemen. Uh, there are wars in the region. We have a war in Somalia, we have a war in Libya, we have a war in Syria that's been going on for a long time. People are not dying from hunger as they, the way they are in Yemen. And the reason they are dying of hunger is because of the blockade. So please, if you do care and if you want to do something, advocate for that. So I think, you know, and, and this was a clear through line through this entire panel, the thing that I would say not to forget um, 
is the number of people inside of Yemen who are suffering and want a way out from this. And we can get very wrapped up, especially in this town, in the kind of this level and the geopolitics, um, and all of that is important, and I'll get to that in a minute, but never forget what the actual situation is for the people who are living um, inside of this crisis. And the ask would be that um, those of us who uh, are engaged politically continue to engage with the political leaders um, uh, in this town um, and in donor capitals around the world to advocate for the continuation of funding um, the humanitarian effort, um, but much more importantly, to advocate for a pivot away from investment in a war effort and toward investment in getting to a political solution and peace in this country. Um, our friends at the IRC did a study a while back that showed that 75% of Americans do not agree and do not support the U.S. military support that is helping to fuel this war. Um, it has been a very difficult effort in Congress, and I think we're all aware of that. But keep up the effort um, because it's important that the political leaders understand um, that we don't want that to be where our investment is, that we want the U.S. to use all of the weight and the might that we have as a country from a diplomatic perspective and from a financing perspective and from a leverage perspective to bring this war to an end. Um, I have heard a lot of panels in 16 years at CSIS. I don't think I've ever heard a finer panel. I think it's due to the really absolutely spectacular expertise, wisdom, and experience of our panelists. Please join me in thanking them.